Police are searching for the motive in the Nashville school shooting that left six people dead, the latest act of deadly gun violence in the U.S. It's Tuesday, March 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. Senate is on track to formally repeal the authorization to evade Iraq in 2003. Here's Illinois Democrat Dick Durbin. No nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction were ever found. We were never greeted as liberators. Also this hour. They work out perfect, man. I'm going to fight to the end to get myself home. When I sit down, it's game time, you know? Newly released recordings of prison phone calls from New England Patriots player Aaron Hernandez raise questions about his suicide. And responding to nationwide protests, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delays his plans to overhaul and weaken the judicial system. Showers through the morning, high today in the 40s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Nashville, Tennessee is remembering the victims of yesterday's deadly school shooting. Six people were killed, including three nine-year-old students and three staff members when a shooter opened fire at the Covenant School. Nashville Police Chief John Drake says investigators are working to determine a motive behind the attack. There were maps drawn of the school in detail, surveillance, entry points, etc. We know and believe that entry was gained through shooting through one of the doors is how they actually got into the school. The 28-year-old shooter was killed by police. President Biden has ordered U.S. flags to be flown at half-staff at the White House until sunset Friday to honor the victims. Biden is also repeating his push to Congress to ban assault-style weapons. The Kansas Supreme Court is considering the state's challenge to a ruling that upholds the right to an abortion. Rose Collin with member station KMUW reports the justices heard arguments in the case yesterday. The state wants justices to overrule a landmark 2019 decision that found the Kansas Constitution protects the right to an abortion. An attorney for the state said it prevents lawmakers from enacting what he called reasonable abortion restrictions. But several justices, including Dan Biles, appeared skeptical. He pointed to an overwhelming vote last year rejecting a ballot measure that would have removed those rights. How do we factor that in when you're asking us to change our interpretation of the Kansas Constitution when the people People spoke so forcefully. A growing number of people from out of state have been traveling to Kansas to seek abortion care. For NPR News, I'm Rose Conlin in Wichita. A new report from Goldman Sachs finds that up to a quarter of the work done in the U.S. could one day be automated by artificial intelligence technology. NPR's Bobby Allen reports the bank's research predicts that AI tools will eventually cause a significant disruption to the labor market. Goldman Sachs researchers say it's not all bad news. It predicts a quarter of tasks will be automated, but many of those workers will get new jobs. Goldman sees that as potential for a huge boost to productivity. The report identifies office and administrative support, routine legal work, and architecture and engineering roles as those expected to be most impacted. But not everybody displaced by machines will find new gigs quickly. Some fear that the AI revolution will look similar to the displacement of droves of manufacturing workers by new technologies in the 1980s. The Goldman Report notes that complex decisions like court rulings and critical medical care are not expected to be done by robots. Bobby Allen, NPR News. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading lower this morning. This is NPR News 
in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The new head of the MBTA will take over the job in less than two weeks. Philip Eng will become general manager on April 10th. He has nearly four decades of experience in transit. He previously served as the interim president of New York City Transit when that system's infrastructure was aging, similar to the current state of the T. Governor Healy says that experience is what impressed her. We're never going to get to where we need to be unless we bring that spirit, that aspiration of optimism and of teamwork. And that's what filling represents. Stacy Thompson of the Livable Streets Alliance praised the choice of someone with practical behind the scenes skills. This is not about flashy announcements and ribbon cuttings. This is about someone who can hire people, build a team, operationalize repairs, and literally get the trains back on track. And Boston Boston Mayor Michelle Wu believes the T is slowly but surely getting back on track. But as WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports, Wu says a lot of work still needs to be done. Wu tells Radio Boston that she commutes using the Orange Line a couple times a month. And with those commutes come choices. I have had to make real decisions about when I know I cannot be late somewhere. That factors in. What what time I get on, I do I try to see if it's for something that's a little bit past rush hour, just so that we're not sitting there for a long time. And so my experiences have been fairly smooth, I would say, just because we're able to choose a little bit more. Wu says writers don't want perfection, but they do want progress. She says she's excited for how newly appointed MBTA General Manager Philip Ng will contribute to this momentum. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Senator Elizabeth Warren is running for a third term in Washington. Now the question is, which Republicans could challenge her next year? WBUR's Dave Faniff spoke with the chair of the Massachusetts Republican State Committee. GOP Chair Amy Carnivoli says two possible contenders have expressed interest, though she wouldn't name them. She says whoever gets the GOP nod will focus on pocketbook issues. Be more attuned to the financial struggles of regular citizens in the Commonwealth. Talk about things like inflation and the economy, the price of fuel, and what they're doing in the U.S. Senate or what they intend to do in the U.S. Senate to try to drive down prices. Carnavoli says even with Warren's re-election announcement, speculation continues that the senator may still want to run for president in 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff. Boston area branches of the collapsed Silicon Valley Bank are now part of First Citizens Bank and Trust. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation had originally thought about taking separate bids for those branches. They used to be known as Boston Private Bank and Trust. Those branches were acquired by SVB in 2021. First Citizens bought all deposits and loans from SVB over the weekend. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Good News Garage. Over 5,500 donated cars given to New Englanders in need since 1996. Tax deductions and free towing. Goodnewsgarage.org. The Bruins will go for their eighth straight win tonight as they host the Nashville Predators. The Celtics will be on the road tonight to play the Washington Wizards. In your forecast, showers through a good part of the day today. Some spots could even see a little snow mixed in. It should be dry by the afternoon. Temperatures will be in the 40s. Clearing overnight with temperatures falling to the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 50s. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Israel has walked back from the brink for now. Yeah, after three months of street protests and turmoil inside the military that intensified into a nationwide labor strike yesterday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put the brakes on his plan to take some control over the judiciary. He's agreed to postpone the move for a month to try to reach a consensus within the opposition, but protesters say they're not ready to give up the fight. For the latest, we turn to NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Michelle. So as A said, these protests have been going on for months, but would you just remind us about why so many Israelis have been so infuriated about this judicial overhaul and what made Netanyahu walk it back? You know, Israelis really see this as a battle for the soul of their country. The far right is in power, along with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and his coalition wants to advance ultra-nationalist religious laws. And the only ones that would likely stand in their way is the Supreme Court. So Netanyahu has been saying the court should not have all the power that it does have over the elected majority. He's been advancing all kinds of laws to try to reduce the court's independence. But many Israelis in the streets say this is a threat of dictatorship. So Netanyahu has backed down for now. Uh, there's been unprecedented public pressure. There's been uh, even some of his own party supporters turning on him. And the White House exerted a ton of pressure. I spoke with a person familiar with the matter who told me about multiple phone calls on multiple levels between the White House and Israel. And that may have helped Netanyahu convince his partners to put on the brakes. So what's the mood now after all this? It's really been a confusing morning. Um, In some ways, normalcy is back. The labor strike has been canceled. So the airport, the malls, even McDonald's is back open again today. But there is a lot of uncertainty. For instance, is the defense minister actually fired? Netanyahu uh, fired him just a couple days ago. Is the legislation actually dead? Those who support the judicial overhaul don't trust that Netanyahu will actually pass it now. This is Amitai Ruskin. If you delay it, it will never be restarted. Uh, I was taken out to the shed and it was shot. And then I spoke with people who oppose the judicial overhaul, and they think Netanyahu will actually carry it out. But these protesters are feeling encouraged by their show of force in the streets. Listen to this one. He was blocking a road last night in his 20s, Matan Rosenberg. And what happened to me as a, as a secular liberal is for a decade, my generation and all these people were just avoiding politics at any cost and what Bibi did, and I'm happy for that, I thank him for that, is uh, waking up the liberal camp. You know, Michelle, I should say last night far-right activists harassed some Palestinians, some of these democracy protesters also, and police sprayed the protesters with water cannons. So, Daniel, before we let you go, what do you think we can expect in the coming weeks? And what effect is this having on Netanyahu's leadership? I mean, is there a chance that he will not survive this? That's a big question. I mean, Netanyahu could just drop this judicial overhaul and promote another part of his coalition's uh, religious ultranationalist agenda. He does need to placate his hard right uh, coalition partners so that he can stay in power. That's the best place for him to be while he's on corruption trial. He even placated his far right security minister last night, promising him his own National Guard, which many people see as a scary prospect. But, you know, Michelle Netanyahu will do anything he can to survive. The polls are showing uh, his political support has dropped. He, for now, has narrowly survived this. NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thank you. You're welcome. One opponent of Netanyahu's plans is his predecessor, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, who is with us now from Tel Aviv. Good afternoon, sir. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. 
So your reaction to the plan to postpone a vote on these changes until the parliament's summer session? The pressure was uh, um, very uh, significant yesterday. <clears throat> there are hundreds of thousands of people rioting in the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, which is quite unusual, uh, even in a stormy country like Israel. And uh, <clears throat> there was a, a genuine uh, concern, I think, in the uh, government and with Netanyahu <coughs> that he might lose the majority in his own um, uh, parliamentary bloc. Not in his party, but there may have been a, a couple of uh, members of Knesset and the ministers that would have not voted with him. So he was forced to uh, compromise. Uh, temporarily, you know, we don't know yet we, whether this is a genuine compromise or not. But for the time being, he had to postpone the vote and to offer some kind of negotiations uh, that will be mediated by the president of the state of Israel, so, uh, which is the agenda right now. I, I do want to ask about the way forward, but before we do that, just one question about the substance here. We should note that you faced the Israeli courts when you were convicted of corruption some years ago. You said that the verdict was unfair, although you did abide by it. But at the time, you argued that state prosecutors were biased and out to get you. Netanyahu is facing corruption charges now. Is there any way in which you can see why he feels justified in arguing that the courts are biased and out to get him? Uh, this is ridiculous. Uh, if at all, I think that the uh, Attorney General of Israel, at the time that uh, they were investigating uh, the allegations against Netanyahu, was ma making every possible discount that he could to make it easier for Netanyahu. Uh, he should have indicted him for far more severe uh, allegations than he was uh, indicted for. Mm. Uh, and uh, at least in one case, which is now under investigation of a special commission of inquiry, and this is the, uh, the uh, sale and the purchase of uh, three uh, um, submarines hmm. uh, by Israel from Germany, uh, the Attorney General announced in advance that Netanyahu is not even uh, suspected. And presently, there is a special commission of inquiry okay. which was established only in order to uh, inquire the investigation. Uh, I understand. Apples and oranges. I understand. Apples and oranges. I take your point. So you have called for world leaders to shun this government. What would that look like? Look, I think that this government is doomed to, to fall sooner or later. The makeup of this government is uh, very strange. Uh, there is uh, a faction of nationalists, uh, radicals, uh, the Minister of Finance, who is a major partner of the government, uh, recently talked about the need of the government to wipe out Palestinian uh, townships and villages, uh, which devastated everyone in Israel and uh, I think across the world. The other guy is a convicted terrorist and he is now the Minister of National Security. And he is now the guy that uh, yesterday, as part of a deal between him and the Prime Minister, he, uh, he will uh, have under his control a National Guard that might easily be used by him 
in order to uh, uh, to attack uh, Palestinian uh, villages that he wants to wipe out. So I mean, this is uh, so, crazy, unique, strange, and I, I don't believe that it can hold. For so, long. so what is the way forward here, sir? What should happen what now? Is, right, right now there is a, a you know recess of the Knesset in a couple of days. So uh, for a month's time. Uh, there will be some kind of, uh, I think, fake negotiations between the coalition and the opposition trying to reach an agreement. But I don't believe that this will end up with an agreement that will change the political agenda in Israel for any period of time. I think the makeup of this cabinet is totally intolerable. And the only reason that it uh, still uh, uh, exists is because it needs to provide Netanyahu uh, with the necessary defense against the indictment, which is now under consideration in if, the if district were, court in Jerusalem. If you were in a position of leadership now, what would be your advice? And what would be your advice to those who continue to oppose these changes? What should they be doing over the course of this recess? My advice is to them to continue to oppose and my advice to political leaders outside of the state of Israel, particularly to President Joe Biden, who is a good friend of mine. I've been knowing him for tens of years and worked with him, that he should not invite Netanyahu to visit America now. Let Netanyahu, first of all, uh, restore some uh, order, civility and uh, normality into the state of Israel before he is... Uh, given any kind of recognition outside of the state of Israel. And how and how does he do that? I mean, given certainly his coalition partners expect him to go forward, and obviously the opponents of this have made clear their position by their demonstrations. What He should, he should uh, I think that Netanyahu should get rid of, of his partners and uh, change the political agenda in Israel and uh, try and build up a coalition with parties that represent different values and different principles and different policies uh, that can be accepted. If he can't do it, then he uh, has to retire, then he has to submit his, resi his resignation. I know uh, this is a dream that would may most likely not come true, but you know, I, as someone that looks at it presently from the outside, there is no way that I can acquiesce with the existence of a government whose uh, primary ministers are convicted terrorists by the Israeli courts. And uh, the, uh, I'm not happy to think about another election after having five election campaigns in the last three years. So the alternative is to build up a coalition without uh, those partners and with partners that Netanyahu will have to uh, acquiesce with their policies and not with the policies of the terrorists that are now members of his cabinet. And very briefly, what will you and others who share your views be doing in this in this time period? We only have about 15 seconds. We'll be rioting and we will be raising the public opinion and we'll continue to oppose the government publicly and and in the streets and, and in every and in every square and street. And we have to leave it there for now. That is the former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Mr. Olmert, thank you so much for your time. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we check in on rebuilding efforts in southwest Florida six months after Hurricane Ian hit the area, killing nearly 150 people. Right now it's 719.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Opening April 1st, worcesterart.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Local journalism has disappeared from communities across America. Research from Harvard shows the erosion of local journalism has contributed to the deterioration of civic engagement in affected communities. Boston is fortunate to have robust local journalism, but we can't take it for granted. Start a monthly contribution to WBUR to keep our local journalism strong. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Worcester officials are hoping the National Baseball Poetry Festival will be a home run for the city. The city will host that festival next month. Poets will come from around the country for open mics and competitions. Worcester has a history of celebrating the double header of baseball and poetry. The famous poem, Casey at the Bat, was written there back in 1888. Rainy and foggy this morning. Some isolated spots may even see some snow. That should taper off by this afternoon. Then it'll be cloudy with a high near 45. Tonight, overcast with a low around 33. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 52. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Martinez. Six months after it was slammed by Hurricane Ian, southwest Florida is struggling to rebuild. Flooding and 155-mile-an-hour winds killed at least 149 people. And a powerful storm surge helped make it the third costliest storm on record after Hurricanes Katrina and Harvey. NPR's Greg Allen went back to Fort Myers Beach, where nearly every building was either damaged or destroyed. Few communities in the U.S. have seen the level of destruction Hurricane Ian brought to this barrier island. The town's vice mayor, Jim Adderholt, compares it to the destruction some European cities saw in World War II. This is the oldest church on the island. This is Chapel by the Sea, and you can just see how the front of the, the sanctuary was just devastated. And on the front of the church, you see this beautiful, pristine uh, stained glass window that was perfectly untouched. Like most on Fort Myers Beach, Adderholt's home is unlivable. A storm surge over 15 feet in some areas swept away many structures and left few undamaged. It's so dramatic, the older homes that were just completely destroyed, but those newer homes that were built more structurally sound and built up from the ground, they fared amazingly well. Adderhold is living temporarily in one of those newer homes. In a town that had some 6,000 year-round residents, people here estimate that only a third or less have been able to return. A few hotels have begun welcoming guests. The beaches are open, although a red tide algae bloom has led to some big fish kills. There are some food trucks, but few other amenities for visitors. By next year, Adderholt vows things will be different. 
we're going to have what I call a functional paradise once again. All the major hotels will be open, the condos will be open, many of the short-term rentals will be open, restaurants are already opening. For people who want to come down for season next season, we're going to be open for business. On the streets in Fort Myers Beach, huge piles of debris are still everywhere. Many homes too damaged to be repaired are waiting to be demolished. But there are signs the town is starting to rebuild. At Beach Baptist Church, a line of cars snakes down the street for a giveaway of something nearly every homeowner here needs. Drywall for my home. I need probably five times this many. <laughs> Charlie Doster's home was flooded, and he's doing the repairs himself. He's staying nearby, but estimates it will be at least six months until he's back in his house. I asked him if his insurance helped. No, I think we got $700, which doesn't go far. <laughs> it's a story you hear often because most of the damage on Fort Myers Beach came from storm surge, only those with flood insurance received significant payouts. Despite winds over 150 miles per hour, homeowners here have had a harder time with their windstorm claims. Officials here say slow and inadequate insurance payouts are hurting recovery and forcing many longtime residents to sell and leave the island. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis is supporting legislation aimed at propping up Florida's troubled insurance industry. But at a recent news conference, he said complaints about how insurance companies handle claims are being investigated. I think anyone should be held accountable who is not meeting their obligations that they owe to their folks. Two more up. At Beach Baptist Church, bacon is frying at an outdoor kitchen. Doug Miller, who owns a local chain of restaurants, has been serving a free breakfast and lunch for residents since the day after the hurricane. He's heard the insurance woes. I have talked to tens of thousands of people, and I've talked to two that have had a positive outcome. Like many others, he sees it as the end of an era for a beach community that for generations catered to middle-income vacationers, many of them from the Midwest. Uh, the working man's beach. You know, nothing too fancy. The chains weren't really in here. A lot of mom and pop type businesses. Sure, there are million dollar homes everywhere, but we're the exact opposite of South Beach. Big changes are underway on Fort Myers Beach. A huge new resort, Margaritaville, was under construction when Ian hit and is slated to open later this year. At the Pink Shell Beach Resort, owner Bob Boykin also has big plans. As terrible and destructive as the hurricane was, Boykin says, it now provides the island with an opportunity. This is a chance to come back and do, you know, probably 40 years of time that have now been compressed into what will probably look like four or five years. One of Boykin's concerns is where he'll find housing for his employees. In the storm, Pink Shell lost two cottages it used for workforce housing. Now Boykin says some employees are commuting to the island from homes 30 or 40 miles away. On nearby Sanibel Island, a nonprofit corporation supported by the city provides nearly 90 units, some of which were destroyed in the storm. Sanibel Mayor Holly Smith says those units will be rebuilt, and the city is working to add more. We had an issue before Ian, now by Ian, it's just magnified to a degree that we really have to look at it to make sure people who want to work and live here can afford to. That could be a model for Fort Myers Beach. The town is just beginning discussions about how it can develop more workforce housing. At Beach Baptist Church, all the buildings on the nearly four-acre property are being demolished. Pastor Sean Kritzer says with the help of a developer, the rebuilt church complex will include workforce housing. Kritzer says one of his goals is to get more families back on the island.
our push for that is that we can get kids in into those apartments that then funnel into the school system. We'd really like to see that school come back on the island, but to do that, we're going to have to provide houses for those families to live in. For residents, elected officials, and developers, Hurricane Ian has given them almost a clean slate in deciding what kind of community Fort Myers Beach will be. That worries some longtime residents who for decades fought to keep out big developments and protect the island's old Florida charm. But Critcher says with the hurricane, for better or worse, opposition to redevelopment has melted away. In a way, the hurricane has forced us to more stay in your lane, worry about what you've got, take care of your stuff. What happens, come what may. Town officials are working on a new comprehensive plan that will determine what the new version of Fort Myers Beach will be. Vice Mayor Jim Adderholt says the height limit will be raised and new hotels and condo buildings will be taller. But I don't think it'll be like Miami. I don't think you'll see the sky rises. It will change because everybody's going to have to build up because FEMA requires that now. And that'll create a different flavor here because you just won't see so many of the old ground level cottages. Buildings will now have to be elevated to protect them from flooding in future storm events. There are a few places to stay, but visitors, especially those with long ties to the resort, have already begun to return. Snarling traffic slowed by debris removal and construction equipment. For some, it's a chance to get a last look at the island before it changes forever. Greg Allen, NPR News, Fort Myers Beach. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, the U.S. Senate has voted to advance a bill repealing two authorizations for the war in Iraq that some argued gave American presidents too much power. And coming up at 825, NASA has designed some snazzy new spacesuits for its astronauts ahead of a planned trip back to the moon. Listen to that on your much shorter commute here at 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR mobile app. It's 729. Join On Point host Megan Chakrabarty on Thursday, April 13th for a City Space Conversation with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Rhiannon Giddens. Tickets are at WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Health and Wellness Spring Expo in Waltham this Sunday, featuring massage, acupuncture, and other mini treatments. Learn more at healthandwellnessshow.net. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Political tensions in Israel appear to have eased somewhat after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced a one-month pause in his effort to overhaul the country's judiciary. In a speech last night, Netanyahu acknowledged growing protests and their disruptions to the Israeli economy. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Tel Aviv. Netanyahu could just drop this judicial overhaul and promote another part of his coalition's uh, religious ultranationalist agenda. He does need to placate his hard right uh, coalition partners so that he can stay in power. That's the best place for him to be while he's on corruption trial. Ukraine's military says it's received its first delivery of leopard battle tanks from Germany. Here's NPR's Rob Schmitz. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz confirmed at a press conference that Germany had successfully delivered 18 Leopard 2A6 battle tanks to Ukraine. According to the German government, Ukrainian tank crews had completed their training on the Leopard tanks by mid-March. Military experts say the Leopard 2 tank is superior in combat against Russian armored troops due to its stabilized weapon system, which enables it to fire while driving. 
The Pentagon is sending a number of Abrams tanks to Ukraine. The Mexican government says at least 39 migrants were killed last night when a fire broke out at a migrant facility in Ciudad Juarez. That's not far from El Paso, Texas. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A judge is considering big changes to Massachusetts's family shelter system. The changes are part of a proposed settlement in a class action lawsuit brought on behalf of homeless families. They would affect a state-run family shelter system that currently houses almost 4,000 families. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports. The class action lawsuit alleges the Department of Housing and Community Development violated families' right to shelter under state law. The proposed settlement would make it easier to apply for shelter, and it would create a more systematic way for families to get transferred to a shelter closer to where they work, go to school, and have social connections. Laura Massey, an attorney at Greater Boston Legal Services, represented the homeless families. She says right now, many families need help from nonprofits to navigate the shelter system. There's so few legal aid attorneys in the state and so many families in need. We need a system that works better on its own. The state declined to comment on ongoing litigation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. A bill that would give every baby born in Massachusetts a savings bond is before state lawmakers. It would set aside state money when a child is born and invest the money until the child turns 18. State Senator Paul Feeney supports the plan. He says it'll give the vulnerable a gateway to opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have. By creating a program like this and investing from day one of a child's life, no matter what zip code they're born into, no matter what the station is of their parents, we can provide a jumpstart to those individuals who are otherwise at a disadvantage. A similar bill has been filed on the federal level by Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. More help is now available to people in Norfolk and Plymouth counties whose homes were damaged by snowstorms last year. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is offering homeowners up to $40,000 in federal grants to pay for home repairs. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. H&H breathes new life into Bach's soul-stirring Easter Oratorio this weekend at Symphony Hall. Tickets at HandelandHyden.org. The Celtics will try to make it four wins in a row tonight as they visit the Washington Wizards. The Bruins will be on home ice tonight to skate with the Nashville Predators. Rain, fog, and drizzle this morning. Cloudy with highs in the mid-40s this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, we'll have a sunny day with highs in the low 50s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at iDrive.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Twenty years after the Iraq War began, the Senate is on track to vote this week to repeal the authorization that justified the 2003 invasion. Senate Democratic Whip Dick Durbin argued in favor of the repeal on the Senate floor. Let me be clear, nothing we're doing here prevents an American president 
from acting in self-defense or in the face of imminent threats to our American nation. Supporters say repealing the authorization will reassert the role of Congress in deciding when to start and end wars. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis has been covering the debate, and she's here with us now to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So U.S. combat operations ended in Iraq in 2011, and yet it's been more than a decade and before Congress has decided to take this step. What took so long? Well, there really has been bipartisan support for this on Capitol Hill for years. In the Senate, it's been led by Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia and Republican Senator Todd Young of Indiana. And what Kaine said recently is there was really disinterest from during the Obama administration and outright opposition from the Trump administration. But President Biden says he'll, he supports it and he'll sign it if it reaches his desk. So there's a super majority of support in the Senate. It's basically just taken this long for the political stars to align in its favor. The legislation also repeals the 1991 war authorization that justified the first Gulf War under former President George H.W. Bush. Michelle, these are largely symbolic votes, but supporters of the action say it really is about Congress reasserting this war power authority, which structurally over decades has sort of crept towards the executive branch, particularly after the September 11th, 2001 attack. And, you know, and, and about that, I mean, after the 2001 attack, Congress passed another war authorization essentially to hunt down terrorists around the world. That's yeah. still on the books. And it's been used by four presidents now to conduct counterterrorism operations. Has Congress shown any interest in addressing that longstanding <laughs> authority? Yeah, I mean, in the Senate debate, they, it was brought up and it was rejected. Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky is a Republican he offered an amendment that would have sunset that 2001 AUMF in six months that would give Congress time to sort of re revise it or rewrite it. That was overwhelmingly rejected. Just nine senators voted in favor of doing that. Uh, Republican Utah Senator Mike Lee offered another amendment that would require every AUMF to uh, be reauthorized every two years at the start of every new Congress. Likewise, rejected uh, only like handful of senators supported, 76 voted against that. What I think that says is there's actually very little interest in Congress in reining in not just that 2001 AUMF, but anything that would, you know, structurally make real time decisions back in the hands of Congress. They're much more comfortable with these symbolic votes. I'm wondering whether this Senate debate has demonstrated any reflection or regret yeah. about the impact that the Iraq war had on the country? You know, the tone of it has largely been very forward-looking, sort of almost optimistic. Kane and others now acknowledge, say, Iraq is a strategic partner in the region, that they're not an adversary anymore. But Dick Durbin of Illinois, he was one of 22 Democrats who voted against it in 2002, and he spoke to those costs yesterday. No nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction were ever found. We were never greeted as liberators. Iraqi oil didn't pay for the damage, the $2 trillion cost of the war. American taxpayers paid for it. More than 4,500 U.S. service members died in that conflict in Iraq. Michelle, dozens of Republicans are expected to vote against the repeal today. Their opposition is less about the AUMF. They say it just sends the wrong message to the Middle East that it would seem that the U.S. is now disengaging from the region. That is NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Susan, thank you so much. You're welcome. A Muslim of Pakistani descent is about to become the leader of the Scottish government today. Hamza Youssef, currently Scotland's health secretary, is the person making British history. For more, we turn to NPR's Frank Langford, who is following the story from London. Frank, help uh, put uh, this in perspective for us. Uh, tell us uh, a little bit about Youssef. Yeah, um, A, he has served as health secretary and before he was also transport minister. And 
His grandparents came to the UK in the 1960s. His grandfather worked at a Singer sewing machine factory outside of Glasgow. And now he's only 37 years old, Yusuf. He is going to become, he's almost certain to be elected today. And he's going to become the youngest person and the first ethnic minority to run Scotland, which is about 96% white. And there was this really striking line yesterday that I saw from a source of mine who said, you know, when King Charles has his coronation in May, he's going to be inviting a British prime minister, Rishi Sunak, who is of Indian descent, and now the Scottish first minister of Pakistani descent. And, you know, when you think about the colonial history and some of the racism that South Asians have faced here, it's, it's definitely a milestone. Yeah. So I imagine the British press is giving Yusuf's identity a lot of coverage. No, it's not. That's just no, really wow. interesting, eh? It's it's actually not. Most of the coverage is really about Scottish and national politics. Scottish politics are fascinating. And this is true also to some extent when Sunak, who's a Hindu, when he became prime minister, the coverage was much of the same. And I think this is, while it is a milestone, this is not out of the blue. People of South Asian descent have been in positions of power for quite some time here. And so this seems kind of pretty normal and kind of evolutionary. All right, so let's get into the politics then. What's on his agenda? Yeah, so Yusuf, he's he's leader of the Scottish National Party, which has dominated politics in Scotland for a really long time. And their biggest priority is Scottish independence. And this is how Yusuf put it yesterday. We want to return to the European Union and play our part in building a continent that's based on human rights, on peace, prosperity, and social justice. We will be the generation that delivers independence for Scotland. Now, that's what Yusuf says, but that's going to be a big challenge, A. Um, the UK government has refused to allow Scotland to hold an independence referendum. Polls show that more Scots are actually against leaving the UK than are for it. And there are a number of reasons for that. They've seen how difficult it's been for the UK to leave the EU. You know, the whole Brexit process has been incredibly fraught. And there are also concerns that Scotland, which has a population, A, of like five and a half million that they financially just wouldn't be able to afford to go it alone outside the United Kingdom. Now, Yusuf is uh, replacing Nicola Sturgeon, who had dominated Scottish politics. Does he have her popularity or, or even her presence? No, he really right. doesn't. And, and almost nobody does. I mean, Sturgeon, I've, I've followed her on the stump over the years. She is one of the most, was, as she's now retiring from that job. She's one of the most skilled politicians in the entire country. And Yusuf, this is really interesting. It only He only won the Scottish National Party's top job with 52% of the vote. And there were quite a few attacks from his rivals, which is unusual because the Scottish National Party is famously disciplined, but they had ammunition. You know, when Yusuf was health minister, there were record waiting times here, which in fairness, you see around the UK, but as head of transport, there were also trouble, troubles with aging ferries on the Western Island. So also last year, membership plunged about 30%. So Yusuf has a lot of work, I think, ahead to unify and energize the party and try to maintain its dominance up in Scotland with the next elections, which they're coming about 2024. That's NPR's Frank Langfitt in London. Frank, thank you. Hey, happy to do it. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on Morning Edition, newly released recordings of New England Patriots player Aaron Hernandez's final calls from prison raise new questions about his suicide. And in our next hour, we visit the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, where thousands of civilians are trying to survive amid the ruins.
Showers and patchy fog this morning, followed by drizzle around midday. That'll taper off for a cloudy afternoon in the mid-40s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 30s. Then it'll be sunny tomorrow in the low 50s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Boston-based Fidelity Investments broke the trillion-dollar mark in total money funds assets. That's in part because of the growing popularity in money market funds. Those are a type of mutual fund that invests in short-term debt securities like U.S. Treasury bills. The Boston Globe reports Fidelity customers invested more than $150 billion in those funds since September. Encore Casino's nightclub is getting a $20,000 fine for over-serving drinks to customers. State gaming regulators say the incidents happened at Memoir Boston in September and August of last year. In addition to the fine, the club's employees will take part in training to prevent further issues. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's been nearly six years since New England Patriots star Aaron Hernandez died by suicide in prison. Now, after a lengthy public records battle, WBUR and the Boston Globe have obtained copies of his final phone calls. The public has never heard them before. As WBUR's Todd Wallach reports, the calls are mostly upbeat, adding to the questions about his death. And a warning for listeners, this story includes descriptions of suicide. This is a prepaid call from Aaron Hernandez. An inmate at a Massachusetts correctional institution, the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center. This is one of nine calls Hernandez made in the day and a half before he hanged himself in the early morning hours of April 19, 2017. Hernandez had just been acquitted of a double murder in Boston days earlier. In the recordings, the former tight end sounds jubilant. Another beautiful day, man. Beautiful day, man. It's just like... Hernandez still had to deal with a previous murder conviction for killing his friend, Odin Lloyd. He was appealing the case and seemed optimistic. You can only hear Hernandez on the calls because the prison system withheld the other voices, citing privacy reasons. They work out perfect, man. I'm going to fight to the end to get myself home. When I sit down, it's game time, you know? Attorney George Leontire represented Hernandez. He says no one imagined Hernandez would end his life. It didn't make sense. I I can only tell you we were shocked. I think everyone involved was shocked. Friends who spoke with Hernandez were also stunned. Here's former NFL player Fred Taylor in a podcast called The Pivot late last year. He refers to Hernandez by his college nickname, Chico. I talked to him the night before, and uh, in that conversation, he was the Chico I remember talking to when he was a, a young player at the University of Florida, you know, just full of life, full of energy. In other calls, Hernandez talks about getting back to his workout routine. He makes plans to reconnect with friends and loved ones and encourages them to visit. Tell everybody I send my love, man. I hope the best for you, man. I hope everything keeps going well for you, man, and we'll stay in touch, you heard? It's not unusual for someone to seem hopeful before a suicide. Eileen Davis runs Call to Talk a statewide suicide prevention hotline. 
oftentimes individuals that do take their own lives do sound more upbeat and positive in the hours, days, weeks prior to the actual suicide or suicide attempt. She says that can make it hard to predict these deaths. Most of the time, suicide is the result of a combination of a lot of factors. It's almost like a perfect storm in, in your head. In the case of Hernandez, one factor is that he had a degenerative brain disease called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. It's been linked to head injuries in contact sports like football. CTE can cause people to be aggressive or even violent. Researchers say they've seen a number of examples of people with CTE who died by suicide. There's just a lot of impulsivity and very sudden changes in behavior. That's Dr. Ann McKee, who leads Boston University's CTE Center. The disease can only be diagnosed after someone dies by examining samples of the brain under a microscope. McKee says Hernandez had one of the worst cases she'd ever seen in someone so young. We graded one through four, where four is the most severe, and here he was, a 27-year-old with stage three, and that, that was quite unusual. Records show Hernandez also smoked a synthetic drug called K2 in the days before his death. Drug specialists say K2 can have dangerous side effects, especially for people like Hernandez with brain injuries. So it's a Russian roulette when people take these drugs because they do not know, first of all, what is the chemical they are consuming. That's Nora Volkov. She's director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. She says K2 can lead to psychotic episodes. So it's not just that they are potent, but they are actually their effects on behavior can last many, many hours. And this becomes particularly problematic when, when people are using them and they have a negative reaction. So, for example, they can become psychotic. Eight hours after his last phone call, guards found Hernandez dead in a cell and religious writings on the walls and blood. A Bible reference, John 3.16, was written on his forehead. It remains a shocking end for the famous former NFL player, a convicted murderer who had used illegal drugs, suffered from severe brain damage, and didn't know if he'd ever be a free man. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. You can also reach the Samaritans' statewide hotline by calling or texting 1-877-870-HOPE. Coming up, jazz talent Kate Davis talks about her new indie rock album called Fishbowl. And in 30 minutes, volunteers are arriving in rural areas of Mississippi where tornado survivors are struggling to find enough to eat. It's 7.50. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, newly released phone recordings 
shed light on Aaron Hernandez's thoughts in the hours before he died by suicide. A glimpse inside the last day of the former Patriot star turned convicted killer. From the newsroom, the WBUR reporters who broke the story join us. Matt's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. At least 39 people are dead following a fire at a migrant center in Mexico near the U.S. border. Police are investigating the motive behind a school shooting in Nashville that killed three children and three adults yesterday. Senator Elizabeth Warren will take part today in the first Senate committee hearing into the failures of Silicon Valley and signature banks. We'll get today's top stories in 10 minutes. Stay on top of the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals, hybrid workplace strategy reports, and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Cloudy and mid-40s today. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 752. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Layla Falden. A year from now. Kate Davis started writing songs for her newest album from the top floor of her parents' house. As if I were some, like, teenager, you know, like, don't bother me. And I remember my sister was just like, are you recording a version of the Liberty Mutual theme song up there? What? <laughs> I think she was hearing the, like, everything, you know, and, like, I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, no, we were, we swore that we heard, like, the Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. Her new album is called Fishbowl, and the songs on it don't sound anything like insurance company jingles. Do you need a social commentary or apocalyptic romance with what shreds of freedom remain? Fishbowl is told from the perspective of a protagonist named Fibo. Fibo is a character that was a way for me to live this story. You know, someone who yeah. I didn't have to identify as, but could kind of share this experience with. In my mind, she's kind of like this dimension-hopping voyager. It feels very much like Alice in Wonderland. The truth of it is, is that I was in a lot of pain mm. and it was hard to be comfortable on earth, you know, and really just like spend the time in this world and it became very um, liberating and comfortable to just build a different world. And Fibo goes on a journey that isn't always easy. Abandoned by her community, Fibo feels like a monster. Control myself, I never could control myself. Is there anybody 
Davis was channeling a feeling that she'd had in the past. She spent years studying classical music and jazz, and then in 2014, Davis went viral on YouTube with a cover of All About That Bass. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. The video got millions of views, and most of the comments were pretty positive. But Davis says she also got a lot of really inappropriate and objectifying comments that really messed with her. I've had such a difficult time with my sense of self and my voice. And I think a lot of the reason why I find these really painful moments of rejection or feeling like everything has burned to the ground or like, why did this happen again? Or like, why, why is this not right? Is because I think I had always been searching for so much of myself externally. She was performing the kind of music she thought people wanted from her. And now she's looking on the inside and creating music for herself. A black I felt at a certain point that I had become a puppet and a caricature and people responded to the very thing that didn't feel authentic to me. It's so incredibly relatable. I mean, because yeah. I think so many of us, especially women, look for that validation externally and then, and always are thinking we're not good enough. Yeah, and I, you know, I even, think about my early days of, mm. of being a young performer. And I say performer with a capital P because that's really what it felt like it was. Mm. You know, there was just this yeah. like feeling of um, that, I, that I had been contending with since I was young. Like if you can be remarkable or if you can show up and do something different, then you'll get the attention and you'll get the validation and love. Yeah. But that doesn't come from an internal place. That's all very kind of performative. Is that what's changed so much about your musical voice now? I mean, are you now looking internally? Yeah, I think so. Without being emotional, she's going through emotions of one big self-sabotaging empty. I think, you know, their validation, whoever they are, is not going to make you whole. I think there was a moment where I had the time and space to really get outside of other people's expectations and go a little further within and say, okay, if I were really gonna do this, what would it sound like? Mm. What would it feel like? And who's talking, you know? And I think that like FIBO in some ways was an easier way for me to connect with like a deeper part of myself, even yeah. though it's like fictionalized. think then this album is the first time you've really been able to be you? It's the closest I've ever been. That I know. Mm. I think that there will always be this insatiable quest, you know, to get closer and closer to home. This kind of like comfort in knowing that there's no performance or there's nothing that's in front of the idea or the truth or like the pure self-expression. Mm. But this does feel like the closest I've ever gotten, for sure. It just makes me want to keep pushing.
Kate Davis, her new album is Fishbowl. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting the 15th Annual MIT Sustainability Summit, focusing on demystifying carbon markets, April 28th. Learn more at sustainabilitysummit.mit.edu and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Nashville is mourning three children and three adults killed in a school shooting yesterday. Police are searching for the 28-year-old shooter's motive. It's Tuesday, March 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the U.S. Senate holds a hearing into the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank today as it seeks to prevent similar meltdowns. Also, for families with children in need of shelter, I think it will make fundamental difference. A lawsuit settlement could reshape Massachusetts' system for sheltering families experiencing homelessness. And this hour, thousands of people are struggling to survive amid the ruins of the Ukrainian frontline city of Bakhmut. I have lived in this little village my entire life. I've never stepped foot outside it. Why would I go to Kharkiv or Kramatorsk or Kyiv? I don't know anybody there. Rain this morning, cloudy this afternoon in the 40s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The deadly school shooting in Nashville, Tennessee, is renewing the debate over stricter gun control laws in the United States. NPR's Giles Snyder reports a visibly frustrated President Biden yesterday once again called on Congress to renew a ban on assault-style weapons, which are used in a majority of the deadliest mass shootings in the U.S. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre singled out Republicans, calling on them to go further than the bipartisan gun safety legislation Congress passed after the Uvalde school shooting. The Biden administration wants lawmakers to renew a ban on assault-style weapons and tighten the background check system, but key lawmakers say any additional steps are unlikely this year. That's NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. A Senate committee is gearing up for a hearing this morning to investigate the sudden collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the committee wants to know why the bank failed and how to prevent similar meltdowns in the future. Officials from the Treasury Department, the Federal Reserve, and the FDIC are set to appear. The Senate Banking Committee also wants to hear from bank executives, but that will happen at a later date. Silicon Valley Bank failed in spectacular fashion this month when customers got spooked by reports that it had lost money on some of its bond holdings as a result of rising interest rates. 
In what's been called the first social media-fueled bank run, customers pulled more than $40 billion out of the bank in a single day. The government stepped in to staunch the bleeding and prevent a wider run on other banks. Lawmakers are considering what new laws, regulations, and deposit insurance might be needed to avoid similar problems elsewhere. Scott Horsley, Impair News, Washington. Officials are offering reassurances to residents of Philadelphia that their tap water is safe to drink. Zoe Reed with member station WHYY reports the latest update follows the spill of more than 8,000 gallons of a latex chemical into the Delaware River. City officials say none of the hazardous chemicals that spilled from a facility in Bristol, Pennsylvania have been detected. Residents can drink and bathe in their water until at least 3.30 p.m. Tuesday, says Water Commissioner Randy Heyman. We have to be patient to make sure that we do the right thing, that we take the right tests, that we analyze it completely, and that we're able to protect you and your family. Heyman says the impacted water is likely to move past the Philadelphia area by Thursday. Health officials say in the unlikely event that drinking supplies become contaminated, chemical levels would be so minuscule that the health risks are low. For NPR News, I'm Zoe Reed in Philadelphia. Stocks across Asia traded mixed today. Markets in Japan and Hong Kong posted gains while shares in China fell. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoi. The MBTA's new general manager is promising changes to improve your commute. Governor Healy announced her pick yesterday. He's the former head of the Long Island Railroad. WBUR's Andrea Primodo Hernandez reports. Healy says she knew Philip Eng was the right person for the job when she first met him. He recognizes and understands the challenges that we face. He understands the urgency with which we must act. And he's ready to take on the challenge as he has throughout his career. Ang's career in transportation stretches back to the 80s. He's an engineer and says he's eager to tackle the T's reliability, transparency, and safety issues. My pledge to the people of Massachusetts is that you will see meaningful, measurable steps being taken and progress being made in short order. Ang starts April 10th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The company in charge of decommissioning the Pilgrim nuclear power plant says it will ask for changes to a federal wastewater permit by the end of this week. The move would put Holtec one step closer to discharging over one million gallons of radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. WBWAR's Barbara Moran has more. The Environmental Protection Agency doesn't actually oversee radioactivity in wastewater. But without an updated EPA permit, the plant can't legally discharge any water from the spent fuel pool into the bay. Holtec says radioactivity levels in the water are safe, but if the EPA issues the permit, opponents of the discharge plan will turn to state regulations or legal action to try to block the dumping. The EPA permitting process could take a year or more. A Virginia-based conservative group has filed another federal complaint against Newton North High School. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, parents fighting for racial equity in Newton's mostly white schools are alarmed. Parents Defending Education wants federal officials to deem Newton North's Dover Legacy Scholars program discriminatory because it focuses on black and Latino students. The group filed another civil rights complaint against Newton North last fall. Newton parent Sana Fadl says legal attacks like these should be a wake-up call. 
we cannot be complacent and assume that, oh, when we see all these messages around anti-woke or don't stay gay, that we're like, well, we're Massachusetts, we're not Florida. It is happening in our local towns. Parents Defending Education has peppered federal officials with complaints about other Massachusetts districts as well. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The state's Judiciary Committee will hear proposals this morning to add more gender-inclusive language to the state constitution. Right now, the document exclusively refers to governors and lieutenant governors using male-gendered pronouns. Both positions are currently filled by women. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Bruins will try to make it eight wins in a row tonight as they host the Nashville Predators. The Celtics are on the road to take on the Washington Wizards. Showers through a good part of the day today. Some spots could even see a little snow mixed in. It should be dry by the afternoon. Temperatures will be in the 40s, clearing overnight with temperatures falling to the 30s. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 50s. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Nashville is in mourning today after a shooting at a small Christian school. Yeah, three adults and three nine-year-old children lost their lives. Police then fatally shot the 28-year-old who killed them. President Joe Biden expressed his condolences and urged Congress to pass an assault weapons ban. It's heartbreaking, uh, a family's worst nightmare. We have to do more to stop gun violence. It's ripping our communities apart. Tony Gonzalez from member station WPLN in Nashville is with us now to tell us more. Good morning, Tony. What have we learned so far about what happened here? Yeah, well, we've seen uh, some surveillance video now. It shows the shooter apparently breaking into the school by shooting through some locked glass doors. The police have not shared a motive, but they have been gathering a lot of information about the shooter, who was a former student at that school, Covenant School. Police identified the shooter as Audrey Hale and say the shooter used he, him pronouns. The police and FBI agents, they spent hours at the house where Hale lived, also spoke with his father. Nashville Police Chief John Drake calls all of this a targeted attack that was calculated and planned. We have a manifesto, we have some writings that we're going over that pertain to this day, the actual incident. We have a map drawn out of how this was all going to take place. The chief also says that the three guns the shooter had, including two assault rifles, appear to have been legally obtained locally here. And Tony, what can you tell us about the victims? Yeah, there are six victims. They're on a lot of mines uh, here today. Uh, Three adult staff members, all in their 60s, were killed. One of those was the head of the school, Catherine Kuntz, uh, as well as Cynthia Peake, who we are told was a substitute teacher on campus that day, and custodian Mike Hill. The three children were nine years old, Evelyn Deakhouse, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kinney. The paramedics rushed them to the nearest children's hospital, uh, but they didn't survive. And how are people in Nashville reacting to all of this? A lot of fear. I mean, dread, you know, the pit of the stomach feeling uh, when the news broke. Also, anguish and 
anger. There was anger during the day. Uh, people are also trying to, I think, show some kind of resilience. There were multiple vigils that took place. We expect more of those uh, today. Nashville's mayor, that's John Cooper, he had a lot of praise for the first responders who you know, got to the school. They rushed in, tried to save lives. But he's also pretty frank about it. That you know, The city's now on this list of places that have had to experience a mass shooting inside a school. Guns are quick. They don't give you much time. So even in a remarkably fast response, there was not enough time. And those guns stole precious lives from us today in Nashville. There's also a local relief fund that has been set up for the Covenant School. Tony, before we let you go as briefly as you can, did the school take measures to keep students safe? What do we know about that? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot known about that yet. This is a a private Christian school. There's no school resource officer there. Um, But we have learned that they did perform active shooter drills and that um, after the initial incident began, it sounds like some people were able to escape outside to a nearby tree line. That's Tony Gonzalez from WPLN in Nashville. Tony, thank you. Thank you. More than eight months of continuous fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces has left the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut in ruins. But the Red Cross reports about 10,000 civilians are still there. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports on one effort to help them get out. We arrive at a kindergarten in the town of Konstantinivka, about 18 miles from Bakhmut. It's just been turned into a center for displaced civilians. Hello, sweeties, come in. Do you want tea? asks 61-year-old Lubov. She's afraid to give her last name lest the Russians come after her. She shows me pictures on her cell phone of her 10 kittens and neat brick house she left behind last October and since destroyed by Russian artillery. Now she's renting an apartment in town with two friends. She works at the shelter to forget her sorrows. Lubov says only those who've lived through this can help the new arrivals. Everyone comes here with his own story of misery and pain, but you can't cry and sympathize with them too much. We speak sternly, focus on the here and now so they don't fall apart. David Tagliani is an EMT from Seattle who's been in Ukraine since the start of the war. He works with a group called Stay Safe Ukraine that's setting up the new shelter. He says when they try to get people to leave towns near the front line, they always say the same thing. I have lived in this little village my entire life. I've never stepped foot outside it. Why would I go to Kharkiv or Kramatorsk or Kiev? I don't know anybody there. That inspired this temporary shelter close to Bakhmut to give people the chance to sleep and think clearly. They can recharge cell phones that have been dead for months due to lack of electricity to let family know they're still alive. The shelter has, you know, food, bunk beds, uh, clothing, the whole nine yards, and internet. Thank you. 64-year-old Oleksandr Nabulin arrived here five days ago after two of his three dogs were killed by shell fire. He brought the third with him. The shelter accepts pets. He says it's taken him days to calm down. Being shot at by tanks is a huge psychological strain. For days I've lived in a dugout I set up under my house. 
He says he's thankful to the support from President Biden and calls the Russians barbarians. 54-year-old Natasha, who doesn't want to share her last name, just got out of Bakhmut. I held on until the very end. All of our shops were bombed. A plane flew over my house at three in the morning. Everything was shaking. We thought it was the end. She says if the Russians get past Bakhmut, they will advance in all directions. People here talk about the hundreds of soldiers' unclaimed bodies now starting to decompose as the weather warms. Volunteers arrive with sacks of potatoes and boxes of clothing sent from Germany. 55-year-old Alexei is helping unload. He came from Bakhmut with his 79-year-old mother. He says the winter was terrible. We had a wood-burning stove, so we were okay, but other people froze to death. Oleksii says they were able to get water at a spring until the Russians shelled them there. He says five of his neighbors went to get water and never came back. We made soup with rainwater, he says. As artillery rumbles in the distance, I ask what he thinks about President Vladimir Putin's claim of protecting Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. He's killing Russian speakers. I don't understand what we did to Putin that he treats us like this. All our lives we were taught that Ukrainians and Russians are brothers. These people say before the war, many in Bakhmut felt close to Russia, but no longer. We lived normally, says Natasha. Everything was calm and fine. What did we need protection from? Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Konstantinivka. In North Carolina, about 600,000 residents will soon be eligible for health insurance coverage through the Affordable Care Act. The state became the 40th in the country to fully expand Medicaid, and that was approved by a Republican legislature. Colin Campbell of member station WUNC in Raleigh reports more red states could follow North Carolina. We have a Medicaid expansion bill. Democratic Governor Roy Cooper held an outdoor bill signing Monday afternoon in the gardens of the governor's mansion. Republican State House and Senate leaders stood beside him as he signed the bill into law. And thank you to the Republican legislative leaders who ultimately approached this issue with a willingness to change their minds to find a solution that worked for North Carolina. For more than a decade, North Carolina's Republicans opposed expanding Medicaid. They cited cost overruns in their existing Medicaid program, and they worried that Congress might repeal the Affordable Care Act and leave states stuck with the bill. Tim Moore is the Speaker of the House who had opposed expansion. For years and years, you know, we resisted expansion because we saw the, the prospects that the state's cost could easily triple, that it could be a runaway budget. But none of that happened. Instead, the federal government sweetened the pot. A big factor for North Carolina leaders is that expansion now comes with a $1.8 billion signing bonus. Paired with another federal program, officials estimate North Carolina will get an $8 billion injection for health care. House Speaker Moore says that makes the math work. Now it stays within budget. Hospitals say it's a game changer in a state where many rural hospitals are struggling and some have closed. Nicole Karam is with the North Carolina Health Care Association. This money is going to be a lifeline for hospitals. 
And while North Carolina Republicans changed their minds on fully embracing Obamacare, 10 other GOP-dominated states continue to be holdouts. Most are in the South, including Florida, Alabama, and Mississippi. Political scientist Chris Cooper with Western Carolina University says that could change. I think it makes sense that some of our neighboring states might look at North Carolina and see, hey, you can change your mind and you can still keep your electoral fortune. He points to other Republican states like South Dakota, where voters decided to expand Medicaid. So this is the rare kind of issue that's becoming less partisan over time. Those who want to take advantage of the Medicaid expansion still have to wait a few more months. The law takes effect only after the state enacts its annual budget. That's expected to happen this summer. For NPR News, I'm Colin Campbell in Raleigh. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, how new NCAA rules on transfers and name, image, and likenesses may impact this year's tournament. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Boston is fortunate to have options when it comes to news sources, but local journalism is in decline. I'm Ari Shapiro. WBUR is doing everything it can to bring you meaningful, nuanced stories from greater Boston. But WBUR can't do its job without your financial support. We need every listener who can give to give a little money every month. Become a member at WBUR.org. The rain this morning should taper off by this afternoon. Then it'll be cloudy with a high near 45. Tonight, overcast with a low around 33. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 52. It's 40 degrees in Boston. And it's going to be a blister. It's going to be blustery for opening day at Fenway Park on Thursday. Later this morning, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu will tour the ballpark to check out what's new. The team is showing off some of the new things you can eat at the game besides hot dogs, peanuts, and cracker That list includes fried avocado. There will also be more self-checkout areas of the ballpark, including a space to fill up your own popcorn. It's 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens, developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Let's talk about March Madness, the NCAA Men's and Women's Basketball Championships. This year, the tournament has had more than the usual share of something sports fans love but rarely get, which is to say surprises, Cinderella stories, where the top seed gets toppled. 
Why might that be? Well, one difference is that this year's student-athletes are working under new NCAA rules that give them greater mobility than ever before. We wanted to know whether these changes are contributing to this year's surprising results. We called Jesse Washington for this. He writes for ESPN's Anscape website, which looks at ways that race, sports, and culture intersect. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. So first of all, let's just set some terms, if we can, because a couple of terms come up that don't necessarily sound like they have anything to do with sport, the transfer portal. What are we talking about? We are talking about the relatively new ability of college players to leave one school and play immediately at another school. In the past, they had to sit out a season, which had the effect of really restricting their movements. Coaches, mind you, are always able to go wherever they want, whenever they want. So the players recently got this right, which they deserve and should have, and it's really changed the whole landscape. How? How do you think it's changed college basketball? Well, each year, your team has to bring in some impact transfers if you want to be successful, because that's what the other guy is doing. And what it also does is allows guys to get to their more natural level of college basketball. Maybe they were under-recruited. Maybe they're really better than the Division II college that they're playing at. Maybe they're not quite good enough to play Kentucky, but they go down to a mid-major and bring them to the Sweet 16. So it's really created more parity in the sport. You know, people objected to this strongly, arguing that it would have a negative effect on team cohesion and coachability. Those were the arguments. Does it seem to have had that effect? It might here and there, but let's be real about it. When people look at college athletes in college basketball, most of whom are black, they really don't think that they deserve the same rights as, say, the white coaches. No one has ever objected to coaches who are predominantly white moving to get a better opportunity to make more money at another school. But when it comes down to a player doing it, all of a sudden we catch a bad case of the morals. And so I don't think that that objection holds any water. And especially given that players, despite this NIL money, which we'll get to, are still not sharing in the revenue they generate. It's really just a slice of what they really deserve. Okay, tell us a little bit more about NIL, which is shorthand for the NCAA's revised name, image and likeness policy. What do you think that has meant to student athletes? Oh, man. Well, this is a game changer because finally these athletes can earn some money from all of these billions of dollars that are swirling around college sports. And it's really allowed teams to recruit in a new way. So the best example of NIL as a game changer is over at the University of Miami. In the offseason, they brought in a transfer, immediately eligible, great young guard, Nigel Pack from Kansas State. Now, his price to attend, a smooth $800,000. Miami has a super booster, alumni, money deliverer. His name is John Ruiz, and his mission is to pay athletes, ostensibly to endorse his companies. You know, this may or may not skirt the NCAA rules. The athletes are supposed to provide some value in return. Nigel Pack comes in, makes a huge impact for Miami, propels them to a great run in the tournament, and that's what NIL is changing in the college game today. What about the women's game? You know, it's different in the women's game, but in general, in the women's game, and this is what I find a little bit unfortunate, due to the stereotypes and gender stereotypes of society, the women who get the most NIL money are usually the type who are on Instagram who may cause a teenage boy's eyeballs to pop out, if you know what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not criticizing any of these women for doing what they want and how they want. But I think that that is what a lot of these endorsers value rather than their ability on the court. And so we have a disproportionate 
amount of NIL money in the women's game going to women who conform to a certain standard of beauty. And that's unfortunate. Before we let you go, what about the fans? Do you think that these rules have contributed to a more exciting tournament? Oh, 100%. Which may have contributed to more, more viewership. Absolutely. I mean, this is a great tournament. I think we're seeing a leveling of the field in college basketball because you've got older guys who are 22 and 23 years old. In past eras, they probably would still be at their original schools, but they're on the biggest stage. All of this creates more parity in the game, more excitement, more upsets, and a better NCAA tournament. That is journalist Jesse Washington, who is a senior writer at ESPN's Anscape website. Jesse, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you, Michelle. Fifty years after NASA's last mission, sending astronauts to the moon, the space agency is now preparing to put a crew back on the lunar surface in 2025. And the Artemis III astronauts will have new spacesuits for the occasion. It's NASA's first makeover of its in-space apparel in decades. This spacesuit from the outside is probably going to look a lot like what people are used to seeing a spacesuit look like. Okay, but inside, NASA engineer Carly McGinnis says the crews that suit up will discover a big difference. And now the moment you've all been waiting for. In a demonstration of the new suit, an engineer does squats and bends down to pick up a rock. So we want the person to be able to go about and do their job, do their science, do their mission without being hindered by the suit. So the intention is that the new suit enables enhanced mobility, wider range of motion, more suit flexibility. Space historian Andrew Chaikin says the next generation suit is also a lot sleeker than the old model. The Apollo spacesuits had a kind of a bulky look to them, a lot of connectors for the oxygen hoses sticking out at various places, things like that. NASA's partner, the commercial aerospace company Axiom Space, came up with a display model that's black with orange and blue details. I got a velvet tracksuit looks just like that. Now, the real suit will be white to reflect heat and protect astronauts from temperature extremes in space. Really, a spacesuit is like a wearable spacecraft. And one Artemis astronaut will make history in the new spacesuit for the project's third mission. NASA plans to send the first woman and the first person of color on the 240,000-mile journey to the moon and back. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, lawmakers, including Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, hold another hearing into the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank today as they continue searching for the cause of its failure. It's 829. Check out Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. It explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. Listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Tennessee say the person who carried out yesterday's deadly attack at a private Christian elementary school in Nashville was a former student armed with two assault-style weapons and a handgun. 
Three students at the Covenant School were shot to death, as were three adults. Police shot and killed the 28-year-old attacker. A motive remains under investigation. The city's police chief says the shooting was planned. He says investigators recovered a detailed map of the school, noting potential entry points to the building. Democratic Congresswoman Johanna Hayes of Connecticut is a former teacher. Every teacher waits with bated breath because even if it's not your school, you know that it's only a matter of time before it can happen in your school and you feel completely helpless because there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. New Jersey's attorney general says his office is now running the police department in Patterson. At a news conference, Attorney General Matt Platkin cited what he calls a crisis of confidence in law enforcement in the state's third largest city. The change follows the recent fatal police shooting of a crisis intervention worker. It's unclear what sparked last night's deadly fire at a migrant facility in northern Mexico. The Mexican government says at least 39 migrants were killed in Ciudad Juarez across the Rio Grande from El Paso, Texas. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. WBUR has obtained recordings of the last phone calls from Patriot star Aaron Hernandez. He made those calls from prison before he died by suicide six years ago. The Massachusetts Department of Correction released the recordings after rulings by the Secretary of State and Attorney General. As WBUR's Todd Wallach reports, the tapes add to the mystery about Hernandez's suicide. Hernandez was acquitted of a double murder just days before his death. In the phone calls with friends and family, he sounds upbeat about his chances of appealing a previous murder conviction and eventually going free. Everything going to work out perfect, man. I just got faith, man. That's all you got, you know? His attorney, George Leontire, was shocked by his death. Well, we've spoken with everyone. There was no inclination that he was anything other than hopeful. There's evidence that Hernandez smoked a dangerous drug called K2 before he died. He also had a serious brain disease called CTE from football that causes people to act impulsively. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Transportation officials in Massachusetts say they need to change the way they approach their snow and ice removal budgets. They say climate change is making snow cleanup cost more because storms are becoming more intense. At the same time, though, storms are becoming less frequent, and the Department of Transportation says that's causing contractors to drop out of the snow and ice program. Officials expect costs to continue to increase over the coming years. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu supports efforts to make the city's transit system more affordable. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston that can be done while also making the T more reliable. The most immediate vision of what is that combination of reliability, affordability and growth in our transit system would be reduce fares for low-income riders across the entire system, fare-free bus, which often serves more of our low-income residents and residents of color in key economic corridors. Currently, the T has three fare-free bus routes in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. Mayor Wu hopes that free service can be expanded into neighboring cities and towns. It's 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood. 
The Celtics will try to extend their three-game winning streak tonight. They'll be in D.C. to play the Wizards. The Bruins will be at the Garden to skate with the Nashville Predators. Rain, fog, and drizzle this morning. Cloudy with highs in the mid-40s this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 30s. Tomorrow, we'll have a sunny day with highs in the low 50s. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at plasticsrecycling.org. And from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com and from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. A textbook case of mismanagement. That is how a top government regulator describes the meltdown at Silicon Valley Bank this month. Now, today, a Senate panel explores what went wrong at the bank, also why warnings from government supervisors were ignored, and how to prevent similar bank failures in the future. NPR's Scott Horsley is with us now with a preview. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Michelle. So the Silicon Valley Bank collapse was the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. What do we know about what went wrong? It was a collision of some very old-fashioned banking mistakes with the fast-moving tech that Silicon Valley is famous for. Uh, The bank more than tripled in size in the last three years, and with that rapid growth, it didn't manage its risks very well. Uh, The bank invested a lot of money in government bonds that lost value when interest rates rose. Now, None of this came out of the blue. Uh, Government supervisors flagged problems at the bank in 2021 and again last year. In fact, when Federal Reserve officials were briefed last month about the hole that rising interest rates are putting in some bank balance sheets, Silicon Valley Bank was singled out as a poster child. Nevertheless, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says the problems were not addressed until it was too late. The supervisory team was apparently very much engaged with the bank repeatedly and was escalating But, you know, nonetheless, what happened happened. And what happened was a massive and surprisingly rapid run on the bank. 90% of Silicon Valley's deposits were uninsured. And when customers got wind of the problems through text messages and social media, they pulled money out faster than anybody expected. But, Scott, if government supervisors were aware of the problems, why weren't they fixed sooner? I'm sure there's going to be questions about that during today's hearing. The Fed itself is looking at how effective supervisors are and whether they have the tools they need. Uh, The Fed also says it's looking at its own culture to see if it's adequately supporting bank supervisors. Dennis Kelleher, who heads the watchdog group Better Market, says for the last five years or so, the culture at the Fed has leaned towards deregulation and a light touch on bank oversight. In fact, the Wall Street Journal had a big headline in 2018 that said banks to get kinder, gentler treatment under Trump regulators. And the entire story was about how the Fed people in Washington were beating up on the supervisors to go easy on the bankers. Now, it may be that some stronger legislation comes out of this mess, but that's a pretty tall order in a divided Congress. What's more likely are some new rules and maybe some more aggressive bank oversight. So there's certainly going to be a call to do something because remind us just of how costly this was, right? Right. The FDIC estimates that backstopping all the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank is going to cost the government's insurance fund $20 billion. 
Now, that's not coming from taxpayers, but it will come from an assessment on other banks. And there's likely to be a debate about how much deposit insurance should be available. Deposits are typically only insured up to $250,000, but Silicon Valley's top 10 customers had a combined $13 billion in the bank. Most customers at Main Street Banks don't have anything like that. And Ann Balser, who's with the independent community bankers, say they don't want to shoulder the cost of insuring bigger, riskier banks. Now, the FDIC does have some discretion in how the insurance bills divvied up, and it's expected to make some recommendations in about a month. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. The Biden administration is training a spotlight on global democracy this week. The United States is joining the Netherlands, South Korea, Zambia, and Costa Rica as co-hosts of the Second Summit for Democracy, which is in Costa Rica. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, leads the U.S. delegation. Ambassador, what would you consider to be the biggest threat to democracy worldwide? Well, certainly the biggest threat is authoritarianism. And this summit is about highlighting the importance of uh, democratic resilience and increasing the participation of young people in democracies and showing that democracies do deliver to their people. You know, uh, Ambassador, I remember the Biden administration saying a while ago, or not that long ago, that technology needs to help support democratic freedoms. How can technology help do that? You know, technology can be a double-edged sword, but in protecting freedoms, it uh, provides information. It opens, uh, uh, it gives people access to information about what their governments are doing, how their governments are performing, and it also gives people a platform to uh, to actually have conversations about what is happening in their countries. And democracies allow that to happen. In authoritarian systems, you will see regularly that they block uh, access to technology. They block access to uh, information. They they block freedoms. Yeah, and more information, obviously better than less information. I, Absolutely. Did the, yeah. did the planet make progress in democracy and human rights since the first summit that was uh, in 2021? Actually, this is what the second summit is about. It's about the progress that countries have made uh, since uh, the first summit and highlighting those countries that have made progress uh, in in those areas. And there are a number of countries. I mean, if we look at uh, a country like Angola, Angola has taken steps to uh, create an independent judiciary. Albania took significant steps toward judicial reform, and Albania was on the Security Council. Uh, is on the Security Council with us. So we're highlighting those countries that made commitments and uh, countries that actually followed through on their commitments. Now, China is excluded from the summit, but Taiwan is going to participate. Uh, Beijing accuses the U.S. of widening divisions between China and the West. What's your response, Ambassador, to that? Well, look, we know that China is an authoritarian government, and uh, Taiwan has remained uh, a solid uh, democratic partner. They actively engaged in the Summit for Democracy the first time around, and we have invited them because they have consistently continued to uh, move their democracy, their efforts to improve their democracy forward. And China, uh, you know, I, in terms of our relationship with uh, China, we have a, still have a one-China policy, but that doesn't change the fact that uh, through our Taiwan Relations Act, we can continue to engage with this country that is a solid democracy. 
And one more thing on China, because I know over the weekend, Honduras uh, cut diplomatic relations with Taiwan in favor of ties to Beijing. Will this summit in Costa Rica do anything to try and counter China's influence in Latin America? You know, uh, China's influence in in Latin America is only uh, important to the extent that it counters our influence. And we have strong relations with Latin America. We certainly appreciate uh, the fact that governments are sovereign. Uh, They can make uh, sovereign decisions, Uh, but we'll continue to uh, deepen and expand our engagements with uh, with these countries, as well as with Taiwan, in line with what has been our longstanding One China policy. That's UN Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, a settlement that's expected to be approved by a judge today could change the way Massachusetts shelters families experiencing homelessness. Then at 9, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest from Israel. It's calm today after days of protests. That's because Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is backing off his controversial plan to overhaul the judicial system. Listen to the BBC here on 90.9 WBUR or on the WBUR Listen app. In your forecast, showers and patchy fog this morning, followed by drizzle around midday. That'll taper off for a cloudy afternoon in the mid-40s. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 30s. Then it'll be sunny tomorrow in the low 50s. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Rhode Island-based CVS says it expects to complete its acquisition of Signify Health this week. The $8 billion deal has faced scrutiny over antitrust concerns. Earlier this month, Senator Elizabeth Warren urged the Federal Trade Commission to review the merger. CVS says the deal is part of its plan to expand into at-home health care. The clean tech company Via Separations is expanding its footprint in Watertown. It's the first tenant of the former Watertown Mill building along the Charles River. The company will take up about half the space, which was recently renovated to attract life science companies. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Our Journey with La Mer a world premiere about ocean preservation by choreographer Nanine Linning, April 6th to 16th, bostonballet.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Major changes may be on the horizon for the Massachusetts family shelter system. A group of families sued the state, arguing that the housing process was so difficult it violated their rights. The families and the state have now agreed to settle the class action lawsuit. The Alaska judge to approve the deal today. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel joins us now to explain how it would change the shelter system. Good morning, Gabriela. Thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Can you tell us how this lawsuit came about? Sure. So the lawsuit was filed in 2016, and one of the main things families experiencing homelessness were alleging is that even if they were eligible for shelter, it was taking days to get through the application system. I've spoken to parents who had to take their kids back to an abusive situation 
or go stay in an emergency room simply because it was hard to get into shelter. So the families and their attorneys argued that this violates a unique state law that says many families have a right to shelter. For the past few years, the lawyers on both sides have been hashing out a settlement. And in the meantime, the stakes have been growing because the number of families in the state shelter system has been growing. There are now almost 4,000 families, an increase of 30% from last year. And this is because of both high housing costs and an increase in new immigrants coming to the state. So this comes at a really crucial time. Can you break down the key elements of the settlement? Yes. So this settlement is more than 100 pages long, so there are a lot of details. But one of the most significant things is that it will be easier to apply for shelter. Many families will get somewhere to stay while they go through the process. That is, if they show up or call by a certain time of day. Laura Massey from Greater Boston Legal Services is one of the attorneys representing the families then they will give you a safe place to stay at least for that night. We were very, very excited about that guarantee. Also, the settlement would set up a callback system so families don't have to wait on hold for hours and hours. It would give families longer to produce many of the documents they need. And for the first time, there would be a web portal so families could submit documents online. And there are many other things in this settlement. Okay, that all sounds like progress. How are advocates for the homeless responding? I spoke with Kelly Turley, who is the head of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless. She's not involved in this particular lawsuit, but she's known the shelter system for decades. She called this settlement a game changer. It won't you know, expand access to shelter to unaccompanied youth or adults without children in their household. Um, but for families with children in need of shelter, it, I think it will make fundamental difference. And Rupa, if it's approved by the judge, this settlement will also help families move to a shelter that's closer to their work and school and where they might have more friends and um, family support. And I should say another part of the settlement will improve accommodations for people with disabilities. And how would all of this be funded? I know the shelter system is already struggling. Housing officials have warned the state that without more money, they won't be able to place additional families in shelters. So where is this additional money going to come from? Right. Yes, this uh, would require a lot. It will require more staffing, new systems, changes in data collection. I asked the state that question and they declined to comment because this is ongoing litigation. But Governor Maura Healey has requested a lot more money for this department in her budget to the tune of over $100 million more than was given in last year's budget. And likely part of that is with an eye to implementing the settlement. The judge still has to approve the settlement, though, right? That is correct. And we could see that ruling come as early as this afternoon. If we don't, lawyers tell me they expect the judge to move quickly. And then once the settlement is finalized, then the implementation begins. And that will likely take a year or more. And then it's only then that the settlement becomes binding. And that lasts for just three years. But the plaintiffs say they hope that once new systems are in place, many of the changes will last long into the future. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel, thank you so much for this really important reporting. Thank you. Coming up, how the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank has increased the financial instability of the California wine industry. It's 850. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The California Reparations Task Force has to answer a very thorny question. How do you calculate in dollars and cents the damage done by slavery and its legacy? We uh, acknowledge that it is nearly impossible, but you know, that doesn't mean that we're not going to attempt. I'm Adrian Florido. California's push to compensate the descendants of slaves on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Police in Tennessee are trying to figure out the motive behind a school shooting that killed three children and three adults there yesterday. At least 39 people are dead after a fire broke out at a migrant center in Mexico near the U.S. border. And workers in Paris are on strike again after a push to raise France's legal retirement age from 62 to 64. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay in touch with the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Cloudy today in the mid-40s. Right now it's 40 degrees in Boston at 851. The Fed's top banking cop is on the hot seat. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, committed to uncovering investment opportunities so clients have smarter solutions to their commercial real estate market challenges. JLL.com. See a brighter way. From Marketplace in Los Angeles, I'm Nova Safo, and for David Brancaccio. The Federal Reserve's Vice Chair for Supervision, Michael Barr, is scheduled to appear in just over an hour from now at a Senate bank com- Banking Committee hearing focused on the recent spate of bank failures. Top regulators from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Treasury Department are also scheduled to testify. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer joins me now with the details. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning. So you've gotten a look at Barr's prepared testimony. What does he plan to tell lawmakers? Well, he'll say SVB's failure is a, quote, textbook case of mismanagement. He talks about how SVB's business was concentrated in the volatile tech sector and how it grew very quickly, but it didn't manage the risk of its holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds, which lost value as interest rates rose. You know, Nancy, that sounds a lot like there's the blame game getting started here. Absolutely. Uh, Both Barr and the head of the FDIC are putting a lot of blame on SVB's management. Uh, The FDIC could find the executives and board members of SVB and Signature Bank, which also failed. Uh, But there will probably also be questions about how these banks were regulated. Yeah, and some lawmakers want to revisit changes that were made to Dodd-Frank, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, in 2018, Congress changed the law so that banks like SVB and Signature, uh, with assets between $100 billion and $250 billion, didn't have to meet as many requirements. So they didn't have to keep as big of a cash cushion on hand to meet demand if depositors started withdrawing their money. Uh, They also didn't have to go through as much stress testing where bank examiners evaluate how they would react to things like a recession. And this is all sure to come up in today's hearing. Indeed, it'll be interesting. Thanks, Nancy. You're welcome. And let's do the numbers. 
Markets in Asia rose, likely some relief from worries over the health of the U.S. banking sector. South Korea's Kospi rose more than 1%. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index rose by just under 1%. Currently, the FTSE in London is down one-tenth percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are down, with the Dow future down about 50 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is up at 3.54%. In France, labor unions today urged President Emmanuel Macron to pause his pension reform plans in order to calm street protests. Demonstrations have been raging for about two weeks, ever since Macron forced through a bill without a vote in Parliament, which would raise the retirement age to 64. From Paris, the BBC's Lucy Williamson reports on the demonstrations. There's a growing sense of crisis within France's government as it faces another day of protests over its handling of unpopular pension reforms. Public anger has been inflamed since last week's demonstrations by videos which appear to show police attacking protesters with batons and knocking one of them to the floor with a punch to the face. The daily newspaper Le Monde has also published an audio recording in which officers from the specialist rapid reaction unit BRAV-M appear to insult and intimidate a group of protesters, saying, next time you won't be going to the police station, you'll be going to hospital. That was Lucy Williamson with our editorial partner, the BBC. Macron's government planned to deploy more police today, saying it's observed increasing violence at the protests. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed with people in mind to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. Silicon Valley Bank was known for specializing in tech and biotech, but the collapsed bank also had its hand in another sector, California's wine industry. Many wineries depended on the bank for loans to make ends meet when revenues were down. Farm workers who keep those wineries humming depended on the bank too, its charitable contributions. KQED's Dana Cronin has more on how both employers and employees in California's wine country are coping. Adam Lee is founder of Clarice Wine Company, based in Sonoma County. When he saw Silicon Valley Bank was looking for a buyer, he got nervous. That was the moment that things went from oh my God, it's a horrific day as far as their stock goes, to uh, this could mean some real changes for those of us that are our clients of the bank. Lee has been a client of SVB's since the 90s and still owes the bank tens of thousands of dollars. That is what I don't know at this moment what's going to happen with that particular line of credit. Silicon Valley Bank was one of the primary banks for California's wine industry. The bank's wine division started up in the early 90s and since then has loaned out more than $4 billion to the industry. Until its recent collapse, it had more than 400 winery accounts, according to Rob McMillan. He founded Silicon Valley Bank's wine division. Lately, he's been getting a lot of phone calls from concerned clients. Some couldn't make payroll. The apps didn't work. You know, loans couldn't be made. It's clearly, you know, frustrating and and I don't blame him for being angry. In addition to lending money, SVB was also a big supporter of the region's most vulnerable workforce, farm workers. Rosaura Segura is an immigration services provider and farm worker advocate in Napa Valley. She says the bank helped raise money. Providing for kitchen supplies, for food. So 
Yeah, we're going we're gonna to feel their absence. Segura hopes another funder will step up with those donations. As for winemaker Adam Lee, his accounts are now with Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, and he's not closing them yet, especially now that he has the backing of the federal government. In an ironic way, Silicon Valley Bank is the safest place right now to put your money. But he did open an account at another bank, just to be safe. I'm Dana Cronin for Marketplace. And Disney has reportedly begun laying off 7,000 people, about 3.5% of its workforce. The media giant had previously announced plans to cut about $5.5 billion in costs. Many media companies are under pressure to do the same, to start showing profits in their streaming businesses. The Wall Street Journal says among the cuts at Disney is the elimination of its metaverse unit, which was supposed to focus on interactive storytelling. In Los Angeles, I'm Novasafo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We have rain this morning. That'll taper off around noon. Then it'll be cloudy with mid-40s this afternoon. Low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, a sunny Wednesday in the low 50s. Thursday will be sunny, too, but cooler in the low 40s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC's next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.